people who have organized within the church for years have, have seen the sea change. Certainly people of faith and people who uh, have a, a justice orientation see those connections and, and say, no, we shouldn't play such a negative role in perpetuating these criminal actions. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. The Episcopal Church has formally adopted an investment screen to avoid profiting from human rights abuses against Palestinians. The church, which has more than 3 million members in the United States, passed the measure on July 13th at its general convention in Austin, Texas. According to the Episcopal Peace Fellowship Palestine-Israel Network, the passage of the resolution followed a week of passionate discussion and debate. The resolution, quote, marks a new direction for the Episcopal Church, which now joins nearly a dozen other Christian denominations, including the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Presbyterian Church USA, the United Methodists, and the United Church of Christ, which have all taken economic action to avoid being complicit in human rights violations and injustice in the Holy Land, says the Peace Fellowship. Delegates also adopted resolutions to safeguard the rights of Palestinian children and Palestinians in Gaza, support Palestinian self-determination, and to call for continued U.S. aid to Palestinian refugees. Finally, one resolution demands equal access to Jerusalem and opposes the Trump administration's move of the U.S. Embassy to the city. Joining us to talk about the significance of the Episcopalian resolutions are Jennifer Bing and Delete Baum of the American Friends Service Committee. Jennifer is also with the No Way to Treat a Child campaign, which presses for Israel to be held accountable for its systematic mistreatment of Palestinian children. Jennifer and Delete, thank you so much for being with us again on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks for having us. So, Delete, let's start with you. You were there in Austin on Friday when the resolution to adopt the human rights screen passed. Uh, Tell us about that moment and what this screening process will do for the church and for its members who want to support human rights in Palestine. Well, I would say the the Austin visit was a very wild ride. Uh, From the start, uh, this was a 10-day meeting. From the start, People who have organized within the church for years have, have seen the sea change. We could see how people are stepping up to, to testify in favor of Palestinian rights when in past meetings they were against them. So this resolution that passes is, is, was one of, of a whole host of resolutions, and it was a kind of uh, compromise in language, but not so in content. What it means operatively, is that the church is going to develop a human rights screen on Israel-Palestine. In other words, the church is going to divest from companies that are involved in human rights violations as part of the Israeli occupation, just like many other denominations have done previously. It was really, I just can't uh, emphasize the fact that we we got there and there were a dozen resolutions um, introduced in committees, uh, which is uh, kind of remarkable. At one point, somebody even asked why so many resolutions about Palestine at this convention. And I think that's because of the censorship and and lack of conversation in previous conventions. So in three years, because the Episcopals only meet every three years, uh, uh, even the members there themselves have said a lot has happened in three years. 
and a lot of eyes were opened to the injustices happening on the ground. So it it really was a remarkable experience to be there. Yeah, one one of the greatest moments was actually prior to the vote by the House of Bishops. Uh, the Episcopalian Church has two houses, so there's two votes for each thing. Uh, and that was actually a whole hour discussion dedicated to divestment in the lower house, the House of Deputies. And that hour was secured after years of, of not getting these issues even discussed on the floor. So it, it, it was uh, after the previous church meeting three years ago, people in the church have organized and asked for at least time for discussion. This was their goal. They just wanted to have time to discuss the church policy on Palestine. And so they were, uh, they, they were promised one hour of clean, just conversation. And that's all we wanted. And there was a one hour of clean conversation on divestment that resulted in a vote that was 75% in favor of divestment. That's uh, it, incredible. It, it was mind-blowing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and people were crying at the end. I mean, it, it you know, uh, all these people that have worked so hard have taken delegation after delegation of people to, to visit uh the working the floor and talking to their deputies. And as, as Dalit said, you know, it's very hierarchical with the representatives. It really was like being um, in, uh, at, in Congress with the House of Representatives and the Senate and how you have to, um, uh, you know, it's all Robert's rules of order and, and you have to be recognized to speak and all the stuff. It, it, it was incredible to witness Delete has been to so many conventions. She's, she's she's used to it by now. But I'm always just stunned at, at the amount of work and energy and deliberation um, that goes into these kind of conversations. But again, it 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 uh, you know I'm, my heart's kind of racing right now, just remembering what it was like when it was like okay, votes are are being counted and we just were on the edge of our seats like okay we did a, we did our best job to, to put our our position forward but you know are people going to listen and are they going to be afraid or are they are they going to um are they going to step up and wow they did it was it was remarkable it was better than the world cup <laughs> 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 true enough. <laughs> Delete, can you talk a little bit about some of the um, misunderstandings or uh, misinformation that's that's happened since uh, the July 13th vote? There was one resolution supportive of boycott, divestment, and sanctions that did not pass uh, at this convention. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and 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 really clarify what what went on here? Yeah, I think that I, I think people don't realize how much work goes into these uh, conventions and and how Episcopalian uh, all around the country have have filed resolutions on these issues. We had, I think, three resolutions that were specifically about uh, divestment from the occupation in different languages because they came from different people in different parts of the country and uh, diocese. And then there were like three or four other resolutions that were about responsible investment and how the church should pay attention to human rights issues or to other ethical issues and things like that. It might have come from people who care about other issues, not just Palestine. And so 
when it came to the actual legislative uh, discussion, some of these were collapsed into one and some of them were voted on separately. So I think the confusion came from the huge success that we had early in the House of Deputies, as I described, with 75% of the deputies voting overwhelmingly for one of the more explicit resolutions that said we, it was titled uh, something about church complicity in the occupation. So it's about ending church complicity. And what would that mean to church investment and so on? And it was a very explicit resolution, and, and the House of Deputies has, has voted for it, uh, you know, three to one. Uh, and that same resolution was later defeated by the higher house, the House of Bishops. And so there was a, 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 a announcement coming out from the Episcopalian News Service saying that the church has defeated divestment. It's just that the next day, another resolution came for the vote, also passing the first house. And that one was about developing a human rights screen on Israel-Palestine, just like the ELCA, the Lutherans, have done before. And that resolution was actually debated and passed. So I think, I don't know, why would the bishops uh, prefer one language over another? Maybe they liked it that it wasn't about church complicity so clearly. But the result of that vote is the same as would have been the first vote. In practicality, these two things say the exact same thing. They say that the church should divest. That's a screen. Screen is the same thing as like stopping your investment in something. So should divest from companies involved in human rights violations in Israel-Palestine. Things, things like um, war crimes and settlements and, and, ma and, and, and collective punishment and all these human rights violations. So... In effect, this is the exact same resolution that passed in other denominations. And it was just confusing because of the process, I think. Thank you. Um, can either of you talk about the significance of the Episcopal Church joining these other Christian denominations and standing up for Palestinian rights and joining the global campaign to divest or not invest funds in corporations that violate human rights? And what this says about the movement right now, especially as Israel and its lobbies are trying everything they can to thwart these kinds of campaigns? I think, uh, I think that's a minimum. I really think that this is this is the baseline now for any progressive institution in the country. If if you have a policy that says that you oppose the Israeli occupation of Palestine, like many of these mainline uh, churches have had for years, yes, then y y you cannot continue investing in it. You cannot support it with your funds. You cannot, you know, you you have to to put your money where where your words are. You have to align your actions, with your values. This is the minimum you can do in such a dire situation. And I think many people in the church understood that. Uh, what were some of the challenges that activists within the church were up against and, and what kind of organizing tactics were useful here? I know, Jennifer, you mentioned um, just kind of this, this steady campaigning and steady education uh, uh, of church members. But talk a little bit more about that and, and what you both attribute to, um, to, the, to the success here. Well, I think um, one of the things is that, as we said earlier, that um, activists around the country um, propose different resolutions, like you mentioned earlier in the show about um, Gaza, about the defending, safeguarding the rights of Palestinian children, uh, restoring UNRWA funding uh, to refugees, and actually calling on uh, an independent investigation into Israel shooting protesters uh, at the Gaza boundary. So there were a lot of issues that, that were 
um, raised there and the testimonies from outsiders, <laughs> people who weren't uh, outsiders and insiders, I should say, there were uh, um, lay people from the Episcopal Church and then uh, people like me and Dalit and, and from other organizations, um, Palestinians and, and local Jewish activists who testified to committees about the, the conditions on the ground. So that we, I, I think, it, it, I mean, this is a strategy that I think works actually in getting people to the point of talking about, uh, about money and investments is that you have to make the case for what the conditions are on the ground. And when people hear about the detention of Palestinian children, 12-year-olds getting uh, blindfolded and handcuffed and taken away in the middle of the night and held in detention and, and prosecuted in military courts, that when they hear about these kind of things, then it, it's like, whoa, 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 that's wrong. Uh, when they hear about the demolition of homes and the conditions uh, in Gaza and unbearable conditions in Gaza, that all that kind of sets the stage for and then do you want to be complicit in, in, in these actions? And, um, you know, I, I, I think um, certainly people of faith and people who uh, have a, a justice orientation um, see those connections and, and say, no, <laughs> not, this, is not, this is not the right thing to do. This is, shouldn't be supported by our government with uh, military aid. It shouldn't. We shouldn't play such a negative role in perpetuating these criminal actions. Yeah, I, I would add that we, so, we see it again and again and again. We see it in universities. We saw it in other denominations. Once you get people to actually discuss the issues and hear the testimonies from Palestinians, from refugees, from Jew Jewish Americans, from, you know, from everywhere, and, and learn more about what it means. What is the meaning of divestment? What does, what does it actually do? What are the companies doing on the ground? The more information people are willing to hear, the more likely they are to support uh, divestment or uh, even uh, sanctions and taking whatever action needed in order to, to move towards peace and justice. It is always the most difficult part to get to the discussion. And, and many times in the past we saw how our opposition, I would call it, like, you know, uh, was just trying to delay discussion, prevent discussion, table resolutions before they get to the floor, not allow people to testify, prevent the conversation. Because once the conversation happens, minds open and, and change. Uh, that's my experience. Mm -hmm. That's the voice of Dalit Baum and Jennifer Bing. They're with the American Friends Service Committee. Um, let's turn for a moment and talk about the action you both were part of at a nearby immigrant detention facility in Texas, uh, an action to protest the Trump administration's incarceration of undocumented people. I know for many of us in the Palestine activism world, the horrors of what the U.S. government and its agencies are doing at the border, ripping children away from their parents, dehumanizing them, throwing them into literal cages. This is all too familiar to the ways that Israel and its military terrorizes families and, and young children in Palestine. Um, tell us about this action and why were you both a part of it and, and what parallels did you draw to, to what's happening in Palestine? I would say that it, aside from the excitement of seeing um, the votes passed, that, that, um, that morning uh, trip 
uh, with a, a thousand other um, people, Episcopals on, on buses going to the Hutu um, detention center was probably the most emotional and, and um, powerful experience. Um, if I could set the stage for you a little bit, like there were huge buses um, uh, chartered by the Episcopal Church uh, to take people on a 45-minute drive out to the basically middle of nowhere, which of course many of the detention centers in this country, um, privately run detention centers, as Dalit will remind us, are <laughs> uh, are um, was located basically in a cornfield uh, right by a railroad track, which was a little ominous feeling. Um, but so a thousand people uh, arrived on these buses. It was so hot, uh, <laughs> you know, a Texas heat. People um, immediately getting off the, of the buses started singing and, and filled this field um, with signs saying the Episcopal Church is here, uh, with signs um, condemning ICE and uh, uh, challenging our immigration policies in, in this country. Uh, people were singing, we shall overcome in all these languages. And um, just, it, it was really amazing. It was, to me, that's that's faith in action, right? Um, and uh, several of us um, kind of left the main field and walked down this road to get closer to the entrance of the immigration center um, where people started to pray and to call out, we see you and we are here. And, you know, as we're looking a little closer at this detention center, in the windows you could see the hands of the people, of the women inside, because this is a detention facility that is holding mothers and women um, who are taken at the border, um, their hands pressed against the window. It was, it was, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's America today, right? Yeah, I was also tremendously moved. <laughs> I I spent some of the time there with uh, one of the uh, activists in the Episcopal Church who actually presented one of the divestment resolutions who helps organize the same demonstrations here in the detention center in Richmond. I'm in the Bay Area. So I've been to some of them here and now we go all the way to Texas to the Episcopal Church and and we are standing there again, and and people were crying, and people there were on their knees praying, and uh, it was very, very powerful. It felt like, you know, sometimes I feel like we are not in an intersectional struggle. People use that word a lot. It's not. It's exact same struggle. It's the exact same thing. It is the same. It's the same sentiment. It's the same caring. It's the same corner of your heart that is activated in those moments, and you're like, we have to stop this. This is unconscionable. I mean, I remember standing outside of the Ofer uh, military um, camp, you know, outside of Ramallah where um, children are held and where the military courts, quote unquote, are conducted. And, and while it, it, it was different there, there in, in, in Palestine, there are much more barbed wire fences and so forth. Um, but the sentiment is still there. And, you know, uh, uh, and there are, the, there are the same companies that profit from both of those systems, and it's 
it's something we all have to remember as we do our activism work. Well, Jennifer, finally, can you tell us about the ways that the No Way to Treat a Child campaign is continuing to educate U.S. lawmakers and hold them accountable for the ongoing abuse and torture of Palestinian children in Israeli detention? Has there been any recent movement by representatives to sign on to the bill um, uh, proposed by Congresswoman Betty McCollum, the Promoting Human Rights by Ending Military Detention of Palestinian Children Act? Can you give us a little bit of an update on, on where that bill is at right now? Well, we're up to 30 members of Congress um, who signed on to this bill, and uh, we're, it, this summer we, we had, uh, at the end of June, a congressional briefing uh, in, in Washington and got a lot of new congressional offices, 58 congressional offices sent uh, staff to attend that briefing, and, we, um, and that also led to uh, a couple of at least one, Catherine Clark in Massachusetts, signing on to the bill. And so we're kind of picking them off one by one. <laughs> we're hoping that this summer, um, as I said, I, I think both the, the divestment work and the work to, to do uh, to move members of Congress really depends on people uh, in their home communities <laughs> doing the work of, of local organizing. Uh, this this summer we have an opportunity, uh, actually this summer and fall, because it's an election year, in August, Congress goes on recess, so many members of Congress will go back to their districts, hold town hall meetings. Also, many of them are running again for Congress, so, so they're more accessible uh, than people needing to go to Washington, D.C. to bring up the issue of Palestinian children and, and uh, Israeli military detention and ending our complicity as Americans in that um, horrific practice. So uh, we're hoping that uh, this summer we will see, and this summer and fall, more, more members of Congress sign on to the bill. And it, it's great when the Episcopal Church uh, passes a resolution that almost word for word uh, is it's from the HR four three nine one the bill um, that's calling on the Secretary of State to certify that U.S. funds are not being used um, to detain and abuse Palestinian children's rights. So it's it's great to to see uh, a church affirming uh, that same message, and and we hope that that will lead to more people coming on board to the bill. All right. Well, we're going to leave it right there. We're going to, of course, watch what happens with this bill. And um, again, thank you so much for being there at the Episcopal Church Convention in Austin, Texas last week. Jennifer Bing and Dalit Baum of the American Friends Service Committee. Uh, and thank you both so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank, Thank you, you for having us, Nora. Coming up next, an interview with an activist in Berlin about the clampdown on Palestine solidarity activism in that city and across Germany. Stay tuned. <laughs> Hay que hacer no solamente hablar, boycott Israel. Bear by the tonus, knowledge was the fifth element. Truth behind the lies is what the music represents. So how the f you 
gonna have a peace settlement When people want a piece of your land to build settlements There's all different kind of terrorism you could perpetrate Every dead body causes karma to circulate It's suicide bombing buildings full of civilians Or cutting off water to cities full of children You can't try to justify collective punishment A country never finds peace with bodies buried under it I guess some Americans just don't remember There's a slave graveyard under the World Trade Center Stop the criticism of Iranian nuclear fission Until mutual nuclear disarmament's the mission This ain't about religion, Muslim, Jew, or Christian It's about people making money off of that division Sin que medien armamentos, digo siempre es buen momento para iniciar Entendimiento es demasiado, el desencuentro siento Que el respeto debe ser boleto al parlamento Es el respeto el primer paso, si no lo que sigues cuento Es un complejo asunto, cuánto tiempo son cientos de años El premio al mayor daño para los de menor tamaño Me empeño en no estar de acuerdo con ninguna posición que implique A lo más cual versión de discriminación, brother Violencia, intolerancia en cualquier forma de presión Más allá de cualquier religión, visión de obsesión Hay que hacer no solamente hablar, boycott Israel I am recognizing that the voices in my head are urging me to be myself and never follow when I'm led So with that said it's insurgency as we confirm some things I am anti-Zionist and any fundamentalist The devil's in the specifics, mixing with your favorite dish You can beef with Israel and not be anti-Semitic Don't buy beef from Israel cause you paying to kill them kids So if you're rocking this Go ahead, do the Gaza Strip, my heart Race when I hit apartheid from up the lens We have lived it, missed Olympic scene Free Mandela pickets in this image Being repeatedly to street for villa children Even freed from prison Cause of global criticism of this Horrible system boycotted by the citizens I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. We now turn to Germany, where human rights activists are fighting parliamentary and municipal crackdowns on Palestine rights activism and restrictions on speech critical of Israel. Writing for the Electronic Intifada in April, Annette Groth, a former member of the Bundestag, Germany's parliament, says that in January of this year, quote, the Bundestag approved measures with the stated goal of combating anti-Semitism resolutely. Yet a closer look at the measures indicate that a key target is the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, or BDS, movement. In June, Germany's Ruhr Triennial Festival reversed an earlier decision to disinvite the acclaimed Scotland-based group Young Fathers because it had refused to renounce its support for BDS and Palestinian rights. The group was targeted after withdrawing from last year's pop culture festival in Berlin over the festival's sponsorship by the Israeli embassy. The Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel has called for a boycott of this year's pop culture festival in mid-August in protest of the Israeli embassy's continued sponsorship. To date, six international artists have canceled their appearance in the festival in support of the boycott call. Meanwhile, human rights activists in Berlin are challenging a motion that was adopted by the city's municipal government describing the Israel boycott movement as anti-Semitic. The motion also conflates criticism of Israeli state policy with anti-Semitism. Recently, I interviewed Anna Esther Yunus, an adjunct professor, journalist, and researcher of Islamophobia in Germany, about the Berlin motion. I began by asking her about how it passed and how it will affect Palestine rights activists. Um, that's uh, quite of an interesting question. I think um, there's no short answer to it. 
the discourse in and in and of itself started most likely in the 60s and 70s already, but from the year 2000 onwards with the introduction of a new citizenship right law, um, we see the anti-Semitism discourse emerging towards um, the Muslim community. I would say the people of color community because today we can see that this is not just um, a racial discourse towards Muslims or Arabs or interchangeably everything that is Middle Eastern, but uh, it extends now to Afghanistan, to Africa. Um, it's literally a discourse that after this new citizenship law was introduced, aims at um, finding new ways to manage a population that becomes more and more diverse on the one hand. And with that diversity, um, a lot of non-white and non-European um, cultures and thus also ideologies and worldviews um, settle in and grow up in Germany. And that is literally the answer to a new citizenship law. And then we see it basically full-fledged or basically um, uh, kicking off from 2008 and 2009 onwards with the first parliamentary uh, uh, demands or appeals to the government um, to slowly but surely end up in a discourse as of today where refugees and Muslims are labeled as anti-Semitic as well as the entire BDS movement. What are the implications of this bill? How will it affect human rights groups in Berlin and also speakers, individual people who come to the city to talk about Palestinian human rights issues? Depends on from what uh, position you're uh, speaking, I guess. Um, I would say until recently, maybe until uh, the 2010-ish around, you could uh, be very critical as a Jew, as an Israeli, as a German Jew, as an American Jew. You could say things that would be today not acceptable anymore, even if it comes from Jews. Um, but there was this time, let's say, when you know at least Jews had the possibility to uh, enact a certain uh, identity and subjectivity, uh, even if it would go against the German mainstream. Um, so there was a certain taboo to not be anti-Semitic, that would still work. <laughs> that is over now. So we see um, Jews that are not, you know, as you would, I, I would say maybe not outrightly Zionist, uh, maybe even anti-Zionist, or um, or definitely against the occupation. Even if you're a liberal Zionist now uh, these days, you encounter problems. So if that is already um, and in fact, Jews are being racialized again, when definitely, or publicly racialized again. So if you're not this type of Jew that we want to see, the Zionist, white European Jew at best, uh, then you are a self-hating Jew. And then there come all these definitions of what it means to be a Jew, again, from white German Christians, which is kind of, I mean, it's interesting, but yeah, that's what happens. Um, but if that is happening already to Jews, imagine that the Palestinian community in Germany, which until recently, even before the refugee influx um, happened due to the war in the Middle East, um, Palestinians here were uh, silent. And it's the largest Palestinian community inside of Europe. I mean, there are substantial uh, communities, political communities in Paris, in, in England, in Italy, in Spain. It's a, it's a different discourse there. And they're politically active, also around BDS. Um, that didn't exist here to that level even. So, um, yeah, it affects us a great deal. So the only people until today who could speak out on our behalf were uh, Jews or critical Israelis. 
Um, and today we see that going down the drain as well. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the history of the crackdown on BDS activism and Palestine rights organizing in Germany and how the Israel lobby has worked to help repress uh, the movement? Oh, I, I'm not very big on the Israel lobby here because I think in a, maybe you would need to talk to somebody else about that, but um, during my research, I think it primarily comes from a German civil society. That's where its, it's, its roots are. I'm not saying that there's no Zionist Israel lobby. Definitely not. There are a couple of individuals whose name we all know. Um, but what I'm trying to say is they would not work or exist or even have that impact if there wouldn't be a certain substantial German um, uh, support, I wouldn't even know, like structural support uh, to, to make that possible. You know, I mean, it's, it's a few people of that Israel lobby um, and in a different context, they would really not be uh, that successful. You know, it's the structure that enables that success. And that is really a, a, a white German structure that likes that, in fact. I mean, that enables it and, and likes the arguments that they're hearing because Zionism is in a way a very good way of, um, of projecting um, anti-Semitism, not only into the past, but also uh, having this, you know, maybe comforting idea that there's a state where all the Jews are allocated. Um, so, and it's a German invention anyways, a non-Jewish German invention, so... We're speaking with Anna Esther Yunus. She's a researcher in Germany. Uh, Anna, not only is there a growing antipathy toward activists who fight for Palestinian rights, but toward international artists as well. Roger Waters of Pink Floyd said this week that the mayor of Munich has accused him of anti-Semitism because he's a very open supporter of the BDS movement and, and of justice for Palestinians. Several major bands recently pulled out of Berlin's pop culture festival due to the involvement by the Israeli embassy in the festival. Um, these all signal a major expansion of the international boycott movement by artists and performers. Can you talk about the significance of these major cultural figures standing up for the BDS movement, especially in Germany right now? The significance of it. I mean, uh, I mean, it's obviously significant. I think Germany is uh, portraying itself willingly and proudly as a complete fool. Um, because those people are, I mean, honestly, the young fathers, I knew one song of them. <laughs> I started Googling them, Googling them afterwards. So, you know, bad press is good press too for journalists. So, I mean, it's just in, in a way they're fueling a sort of, you know, uh, resistance with that, you know, which is, it, it's also funny in a way. It's completely idiotic. Um, and it's not only that Roger Waters was accused of anti-Semitism from the mayor or by the mayor of Munich. Literally every newspaper after his, his um, uh, a show took place on a weekend published entirely, I mean, horrendous articles, you know, basically writing about him being this, you know, Israel-hating, anti-Semitic person and la la la. And the most important fact is that the German um, uh, broadcasting system, state-funded broadcasting system, comparable only to the BBC in England, um, before the before his concert took place, uh, boycotted, decided to not air on TV uh, or radio his show. Right, so obviously for I mean it's Roger Waters, it's it's ridiculous. It's like boycotting Michael Jackson. 
um, or Beyonce. I mean, it's just stupid. But the, the mere willingness, the mere audacity that you have a state structure, it's a state bureaucratic structure of culture that has a uh, the obligation to inform people. It's written in the Constitution, which is why they are publicly supported. Um, or in the law, not the Constitution, sorry. Um, decides to boycott a different opinion, thus violating, in fact, its obligations towards its own citizens willingly, is, um, is interesting. It's, uh, what can I say? I mean, it's, you know, they use boycott against the people that they say uh, are using boycott as a racist means. It's just funny. Finally, Anna, there was a statement published by Jewish Antifa Berlin, the anti-fascist group, which strongly rejected the Berlin Resolution and warned that while uh, it will affect the free speech rights of both anti-Zionist Jewish and Palestinian communities in the city, as you mentioned, quote, Palestinians clearly will, as usual, and by no coincidence, pay the highest price. How are activists in Germany addressing the repression against boycott campaigners and how are they fighting back? I think there are only two major groups in Germany um, fighting that discourse, and it's the, the Jewish Antifa and the BDS community. Um, but then again, the BDS community doesn't reach that um, me media attention, I would say. Um, or if they do, then in a negative way. Um, and then there's the Jewish Antifa, which is uh, a group located in Berlin and um, and that's it. Uh, and it's uh, also primarily Israeli, and it also says a lot, I think. Um, but, yeah, there's nobody else. That's it. That's how it's impacting the structure. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad the Jewish Antifa exists. It's very necessary. But as I said in the very beginning, uh, the time... Uh, the time of kids' gloves for Jews in Germany is, I would say, to my mind, uh, officially over. Um, and everything goes from now on. I mean, don't take me wrong, but uh, uh, in, a, in a given structure of a democratic society where now neoliberal means of, you know, twisting reality to the extent that mere facts are opinions and opinions become politics, um, you know, that's where we're at. I'm not talking about the war or genocide, but we're really in a in a in a scary time where things appear to be a funny spectacle most of the time. Yeah. Well, we're going to keep watching this very carefully, and, and I really appreciate you being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Anna Esther Yunus, she's a researcher of Islamophobia in Germany, an adjunct professor and a journalist. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you, Nora. Have a good day. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>